You're listening to a City on a Hill podcast. We'd love you to use and share this podcast, but please refrain from editing the content without permission from City on a Hill. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up! Make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, Take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings, and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink, and rose up to play. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down, for your people, whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt, have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf, and have worshipped it, and sacrificed to it, and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now therefore, let me alone, that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them, in order that I may make a great nation of you. But Moses implored the Lord his God and said, O Lord, Why does your wrath burn hot against your people, whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say, With evil intent did he bring them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and all this land that I have promised I will give to your offspring that they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. Then Moses turned and went down from the mountain with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, tablets that were written on both sides, on the front and on the back they were written. The tablets were the work of God, and the writing was the writing of God, engraved on the tablets. When Joshua heard the noise of the people as they shouted, he said to Moses, There is a noise of war in the camp. But he said, It is not the sound of shouting for victory, or the sound of the cry of defeat, but the sound of singing that I hear. And as soon as he came near the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, 
Moses' anger burned hot, and he threw the tablets out of his hands and broke them at the foot of the mountain. He took the calf that they had made and burned it with fire and ground it to powder and scattered it on the water and made the people of Israel drink it. And Moses said to Aaron, What did this people do to you that you have brought such a great sin upon them? And Aaron said, Let not the anger of my Lord burn hot. You know the people that they are set on evil. But they said to me, Make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So I said to them, Let any who have gold take it off. So they gave it to me, and I threw it into the fire, and out came this calf. And when Moses saw that the people had broken loose, for Aaron had let them break loose to the derision of their enemies, then Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, Who is on the Lord's side? Come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered around him, and he said to them, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Put your sword on your side, each of you, and go to and fro from gate to gate throughout the camp, and each of you kill his brother and his companion and his neighbor. And the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses. And that day about 3,000 men of the people fell. And Moses said, Today you have been ordained for the service of the Lord, each one at the cost of his son and of his brother, so that he might bestow a blessing upon you this day. The next day, Moses said to the people, You have sinned a great sin, and now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, Alas, this people has sinned a great sin. They have made for themselves gods of gold. But now, if you will forgive their sin, but if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. But the Lord said to Moses, Whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. But now go, lead the people to the place about which I have spoken to you. Behold, my angel shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit, I will visit their sin upon them. Then the Lord sent a plague upon the people, because they made the calf, the one that Aaron made. G'day City on a Hill, hope you are keeping well. Uh, Guy Mason here, Senior Pastor of City on a Hill. Wonderful that I can be with you. Wonderful that we can open up God's Word together. Uh, big shout out to Halla and Jeremy. Uh, Halla and Jeremy have been part of City on a Hill Melbourne for many, many years and uh, recently got married and I had the opportunity to marry them, to officiate their wedding. They were planning to have a big celebration and wedding in Tasmania. Unfortunately, COVID plans threw that up in the air. And so in the very last minute, they decided to get married right here in the Melbourne office. Uh, I know what you're thinking, 262 Queen Street is probably not the most romantic place for a wedding. But as Jeremy told me, as Halla was walking down the aisle, uh, it was in this office that Halla and Jeremy first met. Uh, why don't we show an emoji of thanks and appreciation and thank God for his goodness and grace. And as you're doing that, 
Why don't you go and grab a Bible and come with me to Exodus chapter 32. Exodus is an extraordinary story, isn't it, of God's uh, rescue of Israel out of Egypt. In the opening chapters, we find God's people uh, under the iron grip of a cruel and capricious king. Uh, And yet God sees their suffering and hears their cries for help and he comes to their rescue. And in his power and providence, he, he parts the Red Sea and establishes Israel for himself. He, he sets them apart as his people, uh, a people set apart to trust his word, a people uh, called to enjoy his blessing, a people who are invited to worship God, the one Lord and King over all. So over the past month now, we've journeyed with Moses up the top of Mount Sinai as he's received from the Lord uh, God's word and God's commands. And we've seen chapter after chapter, haven't we, of the building of the tabernacle and the instructions on how we are to worship God and how God is going to dwell with his people. The question that this is really building towards is how will God's people respond? What will they do in response to God's plan, God's purpose, and indeed God's promise? Three acts to help us unpack today's reading. Act one, the games we play. Check this out. Exodus 32, the writer says, When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up! Make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. Right? So here's the scene. Israel are at the base of the mountain. And who are they waiting for? Moses. And where is Moses? Moses is on Mount Sinai talking with God. He's been receiving his word. How long have God's people been waiting 40 days and 40 nights. Now in the Bible, 40 is not only code for a really, really long time, but is often a signal of trial and testing. We think of uh, the rain in Genesis coming down on the world for 40 days, 40 nights. We think of Moses who, who, who fled in the wilderness for 40 years. And then of course, Jesus Christ, who was led by the Spirit into the wilderness where what happened? He was tested for 40 days and 40 nights, right? For those of us who are Christian, you will know the question is rarely, will I be tested, but what will I do when the days of testing comes? What will I do in the 40 days? Israel grew impatient. They became anxious. And instead of taking their concerns to God, they looked in on themselves and they acted in defiance and sin. They say to Aaron, make us gods who shall go before us. Now, it's not entirely clear whether they're demanding a new and different God or whether they're asking for an earthly and tangible representation of their God, right? So by way of background, almost all pagan nations constructed statues, right? Monuments as focal points and tangible objects 
to help them worship their gods. It was a bit like a mediation for them and their gods, right? So, so it sounds simple enough, but what did God say to them? What were the first two commandments? I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Here it is. You shall have no other gods before me. Well, what about statues? What about objects? You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them for I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God. Right? This is God's word to Israel. This is the vow they made to God that they would worship him and worship him alone. And so when Israel comes to Aaron, demanding he make them an idol. What should Aaron have said? Right? Suppose your gospel community comes at you and says, let us throw out this passage of scripture or let us compromise God's word. Let us worship something in our own image. What is the response? The response is clearly, Israel, knock it off. Right? I know you're frustrated. I know we've been waiting for a long time. I know it's cold in the wilderness. I know that lockdown has been hard on us all, but stop looking at yourself. Trust in God. Know that he's faithful and he is good. Is that what Aaron says? Verse two. So Aaron says to them, take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons and your daughters and bring them to me. Aaron receives the gold from the hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made what? A golden calf. And they said, Aha, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Now, the golden calf may sound like a very odd choice, but it was actually a very typical image in the ancient world. In fact, the Egyptians were known for worshipping many gods that represented, were represented by cows and bulls that are often draped in gold. And so Israel's worship of the golden cow is a sad reminder of Egypt's hold on Israel, right? They are out of Egypt, but Egypt is not yet out of them. And what is perhaps most painful about this scene of their worship is the way that Israel is now robbing the glory and honor that belongs to God, right? So just like simple question, guys. Who redeemed Israel? Who redeemed them out of Egypt? God. But what do they lift up? A cow. Let us praise our cow God. The cow God that we made with our own hands that didn't exist an hour ago. Let us worship him for he brought us out of Egypt. Now, it's easy to stand at a distance and, and point the finger, isn't it? But as I've reflected on this, I too have been challenged here. I'm challenged about the many times I fail to give God the honor, the credit, the glory that he deserves. Right? So God blesses many of us with money and meaningful work. And yet so often our praise goes to what? Our hard work, our discipline, our creativity, our effort. God blesses us with 
amazing people in our life. We meet lots of amazing people in life, and yet our praise goes to what? Chance, luck, coincidence, or good networking skills. And God gives us with salvation. He gives us freedom. And yet so often we have a proclivity to thank our intellect or our superior, uh, superior spirituality. We assume that we were the ones who worked out what the right answer is and what the right path is. No, the Bible says every good gift, including salvation, comes from the Lord. And so he deserves all our praise. And sadly for Israel, things just get, man, bad to worse. Verse 5, when Aaron saw this, he built an altar before the golden cow. And Aaron made a proclamation saying, tomorrow we shall, shall be a feast to the Lord. And Israel rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and they rose up to play. Now, just so you know, when the Bible says they drank and rose to play, it doesn't mean that they're having cups of tea and playing settlers of Catan, right? The Hebrew for play speaks of sexual immorality. In other words, the moment the golden calf went up, the clothes came off. You say, that's outrageous. And it is. Israel are the people of God, chosen by God to be his light. And yet here they're running in darkness. And this is what makes idolatry so insidious and so dangerous for us all. Right? Who have Israel replaced God with? A cow. And tell me, what are the demands that this cow has on their life? Answer, nothing. Unlike God, who is holy, this cow has no standards, no direction, no commands. Right? He's like a guy stuck on mute in a Zoom meeting. He says nothing. And so if you worship the cow God, well, good news. There's no accountability. You can do what you want. Sleep until noon, eat like a pig, get drunk, sleep around. You can do whatever your heart desires. They act like the golden calf is a God, but please note, it is really just a projection of their own image and their own desires. And I underscore desire here because it's so important in understanding human behavior and why people do what they do, right? When it comes to belief in God, very few actually care about evidence and facts. It's really often about feelings. We want a God who makes us feel good, a God who won't stand in the way of what we think will make us feel happy. Right? One of the best ways to work out whether you're worshipping the God of the Bible or a golden calf is to ask, does your God ever disagree with you? Does his word ever challenge your life? Does his word ever run against what you want to do? Does his word ever stand against what you feel is right and what you feel is wrong? If the answer is no, then there is a good chance you've got a golden calf fashioned in your own image and likeness. This leads to act two. Our God sees. 
Verse 7, And the Lord said to Moses, Go down, for your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They've turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and worshipped it and sacrificed to it. So one of the simple yet significant observations is that Israel's idolatry is not hidden from the Lord, right? Just as the Lord saw Israel's suffering and knew her distress, so the Lord sees her sin and knows her idolatry, right? We tend to compartmentalize our lives. We have our public space, uh, our private lives, and our personal lives. All three make up our humanity. Our public is going to work, walking around the neighborhood, what we put up on social media. That's our public life. Then there's your personal life, Uh, you know, the the life you live at home, uh, how you relate to your close friends and and your family. And then, of course, is your personal life. And that's the, the inner workings of your mind and your heart and the behavior and choices that you make that nobody else sees, right? All three areas make up important parts of our humanity. The point is that God is Lord over all. God is Lord over all. This is what Israel fails to see. They have lost sight of God But God never loses sight of them. He sees their sin. He knows her idolatry. And again, we may be tempted right now to take the moral high ground, to look down our noses at Israel. But there lies the problem. Idolatry is seen by God, but rarely seen by us. Tim Keller has done a a lot of great work um, talking about idolatry and you know asking good questions and and over the years I've found questions searching questions to be really really important when it comes to discerning the idols in my own heart because sometimes idolatry is not so obvious as a big bright golden cow sometimes it's more insidious and subtle so we need to ask ourselves good practical questions to discern the idols in our heart. Uh, Let's bring a few up on the screen. Number one, where does my mind go when it's free? Where does my mind go when it's free? What do you think about when your head hits the pillow at night? Where where does your mind go to, to find that happy place? William Temple once said, your religion is what you do with your solitude. Number two, whose approval do you seek most of all, right? A lot of us say, I'm living for Jesus. And yet, when it comes down to it, the praise we really want, the praise we really need comes from a mother, a father, a son, a daughter, a lecturer at university, a boss at work. They have a power over you to either fill you up with joy or to bring you crashing down. Why? Because a good thing has become an ultimate thing for you. Three, what are you pursuing that you believe will make you complete? Financial security, 
social recognition, moral superiority. If I'm right and people know that I'm right, then I've arrived. What about relationships? How many of you who are single are telling yourselves, if only I could be married, then I would be complete. How many of you who are married are saying, if only I could be single, then I would be complete. Number four, what are you fearful? What are you most fearful of losing? I think this is where COVID is so illuminating. COVID has not only taken away so many things that we treasure, but has exposed the futility of so many idols. You know, we've anchored our hopes, haven't we, in traveling the world, and then that stopped. We've anchored our hopes in advancing our careers, and that comes at a grinding halt. We've anchored our hope in meeting Mr. or Mrs. Wright, and yet we're stuck in Zoom meetings feeling more and more alone. Number five, who or what do you look to when things are tough? Uh, what do we call junk food? Comfort food. <laughs> Nothing deals like with a, another lockdown, like 16 Happy Meals, right? I mean, who's just been throwing themselves at baking in this season, right? It's a, it's a form of comfort for us. Uh, others... Shopping online, we're just buying stuff to, to give us that hit of adrenaline. Of course, entertainment is huge. And as I shared on the Sermon on the Tabernacle, we go to our TVs to find the drama, the escape that our hearts are desiring. Now, is food shopping and entertainment bad? No, but personally, I want to get to a place where I can say, as the Apostle Paul says, that everything else is rubbish in comparison to the surpassing greatness of knowing Jesus. He's what I go to when things are tough. Number six, what are you making the most sacrifices for? Right? So in ancient times, there were many cultures and religions where you were required to make sacrifices. And in some instances, people would offer up their own children on the altar. They would sacrifice their sons or they would sacrifice their daughters to appease their gods and to get their favor. And we wince at that and say, that's wrong, that's evil, and it is. But you know, there are many professions today that are so demanding, many people who are so desperate for success, they will sacrifice their own children just to worship that God. Very important that you ask, what are you sacrificing and who are you sacrificing for? If you were to look at your calendar today, if you were to look at your bank statement today, where are you giving your time? Where are you giving your money? If it's not Jesus, if Jesus is not at the center of your life, then there's a very good chance that you're in the grip of an idol. Number seven. Who or what do you see is the answer to our world's deepest problem? All right, so relevant, isn't it, for us today? Because the world is trying to grapple with a global pandemic. And the answer to that problem is everywhere. Every day we're reading about rules and regulations. Every day we're, we're hearing about border closures and whether that's going to solve the issue. Every day we're hearing now about vaccinations and how we've got to be vaccinated. Is that helpful? Of course. We need all of those 
things. But as Christians, we know that the problem runs deeper. The problem is not a pandemic. The problem is sin. As the Bible tells us, creation is right now, because of sin, in bondage to futility. It is broken. And so for one generation, it's going to be terrorism and war. For another generation, it could be a tsunami. For another generation, it'll be a pandemic, right? These are all symptomatic of a world that is bound in sin. So what's the answer here? Jesus. More than anything else, our world needs Jesus. Does that mean we turn aside from government and doctors and education? Heck no. But as Christians, we remind each other and we tell our world that our greatest hope is not in this world. It's in Jesus. We seek first his kingdom. We seek first his help and his glory. Now, the point of all of these questions is more than an intellectual exercise. The goal is to help you and me get real with our faith. Instead of looking for the golden calf, we must repent and turn to God. And that involves a searching of your heart. That involves a vulnerability and a courage to confess your idols, to name them, and a willingness to see what idolatry does to the heart of God. Look at verse 9. And the Lord said to Moses, I've seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now, therefore, let me alone, that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them, in order that I may make a great nation of you. When I exchange God for an idol, I'm not just making a bad choice. I'm betraying God. And betrayal... Right? We're in a relation, a covenant with God. Betrayal hurts God. Right? We, we, we're not just breaking a rule here. We're fracturing a relationship. You know, for him to look on, he's Israel. He made them. He's rescued them. He's done everything for them. They're his treasured possession. And he, he looks down and they're, they're giving the love to, their love to another. It breaks him. It fills him with what the Bible calls wrath. Wrath is not like unhinged anger in a flared up human. It's God's righteous, pure, holy disdain at our sin. And God is so grieved by Israel's idolatry. He says to Moses, leave me alone that I may consume them. What's God saying to Moses? He's telling Moses that their story is over. It's done. Like I'll start again with you, Moses. We'll, we'll begin a new life. The plan will continue. But as for these jokers down there, they're done. You say, wow, that's full on. And it is. But perhaps our response to the severity of God's punishment says less about God and more about us. Maybe the problem 
is that we have been swimming in sin so flippin' long that we've just forgotten how offensive our idolatry is before a holy God. The Bible is clear. The wages of sin is death. That's the truth. The wages of my sin, your sin, is death. Can a holy God look on at my sin and their sin and our sin with indifference? Can he look on and say, oh, well, boys will be boys? No. He is holy. He must judge. And that's sobering, not just for Israel, but for you and me. Because right now, it can feel like God is on the mountain. And it certainly looks like our world is living as if he doesn't exist. In the words of Romans, the truth of God is plain to our world but we've exchanged the truth of God for a lie. We worship created things over our creator. Does God love this world? Yes. The Bible says that God desires that none shall perish. He loves this world. And yet in his righteousness and justice, he will hold it to account. Romans says, because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you're storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath when his righteous judgment will be revealed. What are we to do with that? How are we to respond and deal with our own sin and idolatry? This leads to a third and final point. Act three, Moses prays. Verse 11, but Moses implored the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people whom you've brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say with evil intent did he bring them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger. Relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven. And all this land that I promise I'll give to your offspring and they shall inherit it forever. What does Moses do with the sins of Israel? He prays. (laughs) He intercedes. He cries out for God to relent from the disaster, right? And notice how he prays. He doesn't try and barter with God or negotiate. He leans into God's character and God's covenant, right? He appeals to who God is and who God has pro- and what God has promised to do. This is why in your prayers, you've got to know the Bible. You've got to know your God, right? That's what Moses is doing. He's leaning into the character and covenant of God. And how does the Lord respond? The moment Moses prays, we're told the Lord relented from the disaster that he'd spoken of, bringing on his people. One of the most important truths we learn about God is he is sovereign. He's sovereign. Lord over all, same yesterday, today, 
and tomorrow. And yet, in his sovereignty, God has ordained your prayers as a means of grace to bring about his will in this world. Our God hears and uses our prayers to impact this world for good. And isn't it encouraging when you look at this story to know that God will act on account of just one person's prayer. The whole nation is running in sin and yet here is Moses pleading. God hears that and God acts and it changes the course of history. Can I be real with you? Sometimes I get really discouraged by our commitment to prayer. I get discouraged when I turn up to a prayer meeting and there are seven, maybe eight people who have come to pray. In a church of our size, that is just simply not good enough. In a time like ours where our world is crumbling and people are running in concern and anxiety, we should be running to God in prayer. If not us, then who? I need to take responsibility for that. And we need to take responsibility for that. Look, you could be one of these rare people who has a prayer life that is on fire. Praise God. Thank you, thank you, thank you for praying and interceding and coming to God in prayer. We need you to continue to lift up our world, our city, our church. We need to be a people of prayer. But for many of you, I need to say that our lack of dependence upon God in prayer is not okay. I don't think it's because we lack opportunity. I don't think it's because we don't know how to pray. I think deep down, we doubt God's power to move. We doubt God's power to act. We doubt God's power to change. We think of prayer as being futile and empty when the Bible is showing us again and again and again, we must be a people of prayer. I've shared this before, but many years ago, uh, my youngest daughter, my first daughter, uh, now she's not my youngest, she's my oldest daughter. My first daughter, Summer, she's probably about four years of age, came up to me and shared this wild idea of creating a lemonade stand just out the front of our house. Uh, she's got these entrepreneurial gifts, I'm not sure where they come from. And uh, she's thinking, let's make a lemonade stand, big, you know, lemonade jugs and sign and stickers and toys, and let's make our first million. So there we are, out the front. And uh, I don't know what was happening that day, but, but no one was buying lemonade. And, and, and the streets were quiet, eerily quiet. And we're looking at our watches and I could see my daughter's smile beginning to fade and I'm starting to feel nervous. No one's coming. 30 minutes in, we haven't sold one cup of lemonade. And then Summer says something to me that stopped me in my tracks. She says, Dad, I think we should pray. <laughs> I think we should pray. And in that moment, my heart actually began to sink. Why? Because I thought there was no way God was going to answer our prayers about this silly lemonade stand. And we're going to be praying there and it's going to be useless and no one's going to buy the lemonade. And then Summer, well, she's going to give up on God and then she's going to give up on the church and then she's going to join a metal band and run off with a bikey. And it's just all going to come down to this moment. 
with a lemonade stand. And so I said, okay, let's pray. And I tell you that day, I prayed harder than I think I've ever prayed. Lord, please bring someone to buy some lemonade. Well, true story. After we prayed, we walked back to the lemonade stand. And immediately, this woman, out of nowhere, makes a detour across the road, pulls $5 out of her wallet, and buys a cup of lemonade. And Summer looks to me and says, God sent her from the sky. <laughs> and I said, close enough. In that moment, I learned something. I was challenged. Why do I persist in this idea that God doesn't want to act, that God doesn't care about the little things in our lives, the big things in our life? Why do I persist in this notion that prayer is useless? Because time and time again in my own life, church history, and indeed the Bible, we see that God has ordained prayers as a means of grace. Lean into that city on a hill. Whatever you are going through right now, whatever you see that is concerning you, don't look to yourself, don't look to this world. Seek first the kingdom of God. Bring it to the Lord and watch him move. Verse 15, then Moses turned and went down from the mountain with the two tablets of the testimony. As Moses ascends the mountain, he approaches the camp where Israel and he is, is uh, worshipping and he hears music coming from the camp and it's bad. It's really bad. Not Justin Bieber bad. It's golden calf bad. They're worshipping and he sees the sins of Israel and he smashes the stone tablets, which is somewhat symbolic, isn't it? Because it's a breaking of God's word. And then verse 20, he took the calf that they had made and burnt it with fire and ground it to powder and scattered it on the water and made the people of Israel drink it. Don't you love Moses' pastoral care? <laughs> he doesn't sit down and talk with them about their sin. He doesn't enter into a dialogue about what led to the circumstances and how they got to this moment. He comes down and without a word, smashes their cow god makes a golden smoothie and says, here you go, boys and girls, drink it. Uh, I remember helping a dude uh, deal with his porn collection. Uh, we destroyed it, but it never occurred to me that I was supposed to put it in a blender and make him drink it. Is Moses a little unhinged? Maybe. Uh, would this pass OH&S today? Probably not. But there's a principle here that I think is lost on many Christians today. When it comes to sin, when it comes to idolatry, you don't manage it, you don't massage it, you don't contain it, you don't try and control it, you destroy it. You destroy it, right? Let's be really clear here. Whatever is in your life that's not from God, whatever you have put in the place of God, the Apostle Paul says, it must be put to death. For some, this might involve leaving that boyfriend or girlfriend who has an unhealthy hold on your life. For some, this might involve coming clean about ongoing sin in your marriage and resolving to get help and accountability to make it right. For some, this could be repenting of the sin of bitterness and asking God's help 
to extend a hand of forgiveness. For some, this might be confessing your lack of prayer and dependence upon God and asking that He would ignite your heart in worship of Him. For some, this might involve getting serious about putting to death an addiction. You are worshipping sex. You are worshipping power. You are worshipping morality. You are worshipping materialism. You are worshipping this world. You are worshipping yourself. Now is the time to confess that to the Lord, to repent of your sin and to trust Him. God wants you to be real with your faith. God wants you to worship Him with an undivided heart. And that's why Moses not only destroys this idol, but calls them to make a stand. Verse 26, he says, Who is on the Lord's side? Come to me. Right? You have an opportunity. You can continue in your sin and deceit, or you can stand for the Lord. When it comes to faith, it's not that complicated. You can't have a foot in both camps. You can't worship God with one part of your life and worship the world with the other part. You are either in Him and for Him or you are not. You must choose. In the book of Exodus, we see that some people choose to follow God and some don't. What we see in the rest of the chapter is that that sin comes at a cost. The wages of sin, as we've said, is death. Israel is in sin and because of their sin, many are brought to account. And so what does Moses do? He goes up to the mountain once more and he says to the Lord, Alas, this people have sinned a great sin. They've made for themselves gods of gold. But now, if you will forgive their sin, but if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. Can you see Moses standing on this mountain? Can you see his grief over the sins of his own people? Can you see his arms out like this saying, Lord, I know the wages of sin is death. Take me. Blot out my life for theirs. You know, up until this moment, Israel has known the need of a mediator, someone to intercede on behalf of the people. They've also known their need for atonement, an animal, a bull, something that needed to be sacrificed for their sins. Here in this moment, we see that the mediator and the atoning one are one. Moses putting himself forward. But God says something and does something that takes us by surprise. He rejects Moses' offer. Why? Because he knew of a greater mediator and atonement that was to come. Not a man tainted by sin, but God's pure and perfect son. Like Moses, who came down the mountain, so Jesus came down to earth from heaven. As Moses destroyed the golden calf, so Jesus came to destroy the idols that ensnare and enslave us all. As Moses called out people to come to him, so Jesus says to us all, come, follow me. And just as Moses put forward his life as an atonement, so Jesus offers up his for us all. And while God rejected the sacrifice of Moses, he accepted the sacrifice of Jesus and paid for your sin and my sin in full. 
in Jesus and his life, death and resurrection, there is now forgiveness for your sin. There is freedom from the wrath of God that we deserve. In Jesus, we are not only spared from God's judgment, we are invited into his love. Do you know this Jesus? Are you entrusting yourself to this Jesus? You know, I know for many of us, we know this Jesus. And we can think of a time where Jesus was our all in all, but but like Israel in the golden calf, so we can see that we have forsaken our first love. Spurgeon says, where did we lose our first love? If we have lost it, have we lost it in the world? Too much of the world is a bad thing for any person. Have we lost our first love by spending too much time with worldly people? Have we forgotten how much we owe Christ? Have we neglected communion with Christ? There are a thousand possible reasons, but each person must search his own heart. Now is the time to search your heart, to invite God in to See if there is anything of offence within and that by his spirit he might lead you in the way of everlasting life to confess your sin, to repent of your sin and to go to God knowing that he is good, knowing that the sacrifice has been made and knowing that his love abounds. So what I want to do right now is give you a moment before we sing to just come before the Lord with your hands out like this and to pray that God would search your heart and to pray that you might confess your sins and to pray that you would take hold of your first love. I'll give you a few moments to do that and then we'll sing. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, Or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au.